This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Military History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Alex Beckstrand. I am a host on the channel. Today, I am joined by retired Colonel Dean Nowiski. Uh, he has written a book entitled The American Army in Germany, 1918 to 1923, Success Against the Odds. It was published in 2021 by the University Press of Kansas. Uh, Mr. Dean Nowiski is a professor of history at the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. Uh, and, sir, we're glad to have you on the podcast. Glad to be with you, Alex. All right, sir. So just to start off, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the project? Sure. So I served in the United States Army for 31 years. I was an armor officer and a war planner. Uh, I retired in 2009. When I retired, I was a doctor of history from Princeton University. Uh, The beginning of my interest in this topic was through my dissertation research. Even though this book is not my dissertation, it's an outgrowth of the research for the dissertation. And in that process, in my dissertation, I uh, compared the American military governors of Germany after World War One and World War Two, uh, I looked for linkages between the two, and if one learned from the other, uh, and in that process, I looked to see uh, about the American military governor of Germany after World War One, whose name was General Henry Terman Allen, a notable cavalry officer, nineteenth-century cavalryman, who served on into the the 20th century, and I found that he was a very successful military governor of Germany during the Rhineland occupation, and I was intrigued. I was also intrigued by the force that he led, and that led to the research for this book. Okay, and so you kind of hinted at it, but are there any other components you'd like to mention regarding just the general thesis of of the book? What I'd like to say is that I think that uh, if students of history and professional military officers are looking for a role model of a successful military governor, 
General Allen is it. And I think that uh, he led a noteworthy force. Uh, it's noteworthy for the success in its occupation and the performance of the occupation. It's noteworthy for the training that it had, uh, for its level of proficiency. And, you know, among the units in the Army, it was probably the best. Uh, and I think a lot of that is, you know, overshadowed by interwar history, and it's a lost episode, and it's worthy of attention. What was happening in the run-up to the conclusion of the hostilities in 1918, and how uh, did the U.S. become an occupier in Germany? So that is an improbable story in that uh, I don't think by American tradition we've ever willingly you know, participated in occupations unless it was required. Uh, in the negotiations for the peace treaty, General Wilson offered to participate in the occupation with the other allies as a means to an end and to get some of the other things that he wanted, such as his 14 points adopted. So unexpected that we would go in, but all four uh, occupation powers, the, the three allies, France, Belgium, and England, and uh, the United States as an associated power, all proceeded forward from the, the armistice line to occupy the Rhineland. That was all part of the negotiations for the Treaty of Peace, the Treaty of Versailles, uh, with the Rhineland Agreement as an addendum. And can you talk about sort of the international context regarding the other other countries that uh, occupied parts of Germany and maybe their locations, as well as the organization? I know you specifically talk about the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission, if I said that correctly. Sure. Um, so the occupation zone was the province of the Rhineland, which was a Prussian province. It was the left bank of the Rhine from the border with France and Belgium to the Rhine itself. There were four occupation zones. Uh, the furthest one to the north was the, the Belgian occupation zone. Then came the uh, English zone, which centered on Cologne. Uh, the American occupation zone at its center point, the crossing the bridgehead over the Rhine at Koblenz. And then the French zone was further south uh, crossing at the vicinity of Mainz, Wiesbaden, that area. Uh, and those, those were the four occupation zones. Each of the allies, except for the, the Belgians, had a, uh, a zone of uh, across the Rhine so that there was a bridgehead in all those locations across the Rhine in case uh, the forces need to go further into Germany. The uh, governing body, there was first a Rhineland High Commission, and then it was replaced when the Treaty of Peace went into effect by the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission. That was by agreement in the treaty and with the Rhineland Agreement as an addendum. Uh, the four, same four parties participated with the United States as an unofficial observer. And that was the, uh, the formal governing authority, a civilian body that governed the occupation, the military occupation of the Rhineland. Okay. And in the, 
American zone of occupation, what were the responses from the German army uh, or what was left of it, as well as the German people? So one of the successes in the initial part of the occupation was the advance of the Third Army into the American zone of occupation, which extended from the border with Luxembourg all the way across the Rhine there at Koblenz. The American Third Army was a larger force than a lot of people realize. It was almost a quarter of a million men and officers, um, something like 30,000 animals. This was a horse-drawn army still. It was mechanized and horse-drawn, and it, it advanced into the American zone of occupation, occupied that part. As it was advancing, it was, it, it was following the retreating German army from the line of the armistice into Germany at a distance of about 10 kilometers. There was a, a zone of separation there, but it closely followed the army as it retreated, the German army. And I think probably the most notable thing about that was there was no, no hostilities between the retreating German army and the advancing American army. Uh, really, it was like the, uh, the German army was you know, anxious to go home and to be released from service. Uh, some of the, uh, the discharged German soldiers actually came back through the American lines to go home. They go home to places like Luxembourg and uh, the occupation zone itself. And there was probably a little bit of attitude, but no, no open hostilities, no confrontations between the two. Um, yes. And what, what of the, the local populace in the area, sir? Uh, it's probably important to remember that at this time, uh, there was a lot of revolutionary tumult in Germany. And I think one of the characteristics about the occupation was that all the Allied zones were stable. Uh, in Germany itself, the Spartacist uprising and the same revolutionary forces that deposed the Kaiser, uh, you know, infected the German army itself. Uh, people were just trying to uh, to have a you know stable economy. Uh, in the occupied zone, things remained stable. That's one of the successes. And uh, the American American zone. One of the unexpected things was as they advanced into the zone, the Third Army actually billeted with uh, the German populace. So you had soldiers, you know, in the rural Rhineland uh, living with the Germans. Uh, they were under an, a non-fraternization order, which is kind of nonsensical because there you are, it's wintertime. Uh, you're in a, a peasant household They've got one fire. Everybody has to be around it, but you're not supposed to fraternize. So it, it was kind of a ridiculous order. Uh, the The German population and the the United States forces, in general, got along without incident. Okay, uh, you mentioned General Henry T. Allen, which the 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 book you know, revolves around considerably. Um, can you tell uh, listeners a little bit about his military history and how he became uh, to be in command of the uh, American forces in Germany? Sure. 
General Allen was handpicked by General Pershing to be the American military governor. And as you understand, his uh, taking command, there's a change of organization from the Third Army to the American forces in Germany, which was the organization that General Allen commanded. And that change of command was July 8th, 1919. Um, it was at the same time that the Third Army was packing up and going home that the American forces in Germany were created to uh, continue the occupation. General Allen was a division commander in World War I, a successful division commander. Uh, he was noted by General Pershing, but probably what's more important is that he had experience as a military governor and as a military governor of Lady in the Philippines in the first decade of the, uh, the 20th century. And he had been a military attache both to Russia and to Germany. So he was at ease in those type of circles, and he was a good choice as the military governor. And in his time in Germany, he uh, wore multiple hats and, and fulfilled multiple roles, both as the commander of the American forces in Germany and also uh, either initially or eventually as the U.S. representative to the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission. Can you tell us about how he balanced those roles? He made effective use of his his staffs. So he had two staffs. One was as the military component, the American forces in Germany, for which he was the commander. And the presence of American troops in occupied Germany really kind of was his basis of authority and basis of power. Uh, on the Inter-Allied Rhineland Commission, he was an unofficial observer after Pierpont Noyes uh, gave up that role in May of uh, 1920. And so General Allen was the unofficial observer from May 1920 all the way to January 1923, uh, the participant in the, in the councils of the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission. He had his own staff there, which was, again, American uh, expatriates and, you know, American staffers who supported that, the diplomatic side. Um, and, he, and he used both those staffs to enable effective diplomatic representation and military command at the same time. That's how he balanced those roles. Were there any you know, concerns or troubles just regarding the, the civil-military dynamic as, as he fulfilled both a military role and also a a diplomatic role, particularly after uh, you mentioned the civilian representative departed? Uh, I think that probably he himself didn't expect to become the unofficial observer, but he had been an effective uh, commander, and he also did a very excellent job of keeping the Department of State informed of all diplomatic uh, and political economic developments had a system of reports that he sent to the Department of State, a weekly system of reports for, for multiple years. And in some respects, I think he did a better job of keeping the Secretary of State informed than the Secretary of War. Um, so he, he effectively balanced both of those and kept both sides engaged and informed. Okay. Uh, can you talk about 
as as the peace treaty uh, is eventually uh, finalized, but the U.S. Senate refuses to ratify, how, how does that affect the dynamics that General Allen has to maneuver? Um, you know, in his in his time in Germany, and and how does that affect the status of the United States in Germany as an occupier? So I think this is one of the keys to success of General Allen. When the Treaty of Peace went into effect in uh, January 1920, uh, the United States had not ratified. And so he was left with a choice. What what was he going to do? And the, the other occupying powers in Germany also had a choice. Because technically, uh, had the Germans chosen to make an issue of it, um, you didn't have all four powers as signatories of the treaty. And a lot of the provisions in the treaty, you know, were technically not in effect. But what General Allen did was he implemented the ordinances of the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission over his own authority as orders as a military commander and put them into effect in the American zone. And so, in effect, whatever the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission enunciated, Allen implemented over his own military authority. And it, that's the modus vivendi. And it was successful in preserving the, uh, the Rhineland occupation, its, its authority, uh, its stability. It was accepted by the Germans. And it's you know, part of the reason that I think he was uh, so, so successful, it gave him a voice in the councils of the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission because he had bought in and supported the, uh, the Treaty of Peace and the Rhineland Agreement over his own military command authority, if that makes sense. Okay, yeah, it does. Uh, what was the organization of the American forces in Germany? Initially, uh, there was to be one brigade of American troops. It was the first brigade, and it had cavalry, artillery, aviation as part of it. Um, as part of the implementation of the Treaty of Peace, there was supposed to be a Silesian plebiscite, and the United States created a brigade of uh, troops to go to Silesia to supervise and enforce the plebiscite. They arrived in Germany for training in the fall of 1919. When they arrived, uh, they never left because the United States decided it was not going to send a brigade to Silesia. Uh, the, the brigade that was sent there became the second brigade of the American forces in Germany. And so what Allen had was two brigade-sized units, uh, three infantry regiments, and he had all the enablers of a standard American division. He had a division staff. Uh, he had substantial quartermaster units. He had machine gun units, artillery, had a mounted detachment that he formed himself, and he had an aviation detachment. And all those elements uh, combined into a division with, with combined arms that he exercised and trained in Germany. And what, what are the varying troop levels at its peak and, and as it starts to uh, dwindle down uh, as the U.S. begins withdrawing later in the, in the occupation period? So you can kind of trace the American commitment uh, to 
the Rhineland occupation by the size of the troops. First of all, the Third Army, which existed in Germany from the armistice, they arrived in December 1919 and finally were shipped home in about September of 1919. During that period, they started with 240,000 American soldiers and they gradually dwindled down to what remained was the American forces in Germany. And that force, a steady state figure for it would be about 15,000 soldiers. 15,000 American soldiers in Germany, in the Rhineland, in 1920 and 1921. Uh, after the American separate treaty of peace went into effect in, in uh, the fall of 1921, uh, with the new president, they started to downsize that. But even in May of of uh, 1922, there were still 5,000 soldiers left. Uh, the remnant force that remained there from uh, the summer of 1922 until the departure in January 1923 was 1,000 troops. So it ranged from 240,000, steady state of 15,000 down to 1,000. But you know, to have a division-sized force of 15,000 troops for two full years in the Rhineland in 1920 and 21, I think, is a surprise to a lot of people. Yeah, and in, in terms of the troops that made up this force, um, is it, it, it seemed like from your book that it was, uh, these, weren't, these weren't draftees coming over, the, and these weren't uh, necessarily regular army soldiers per se, but there was a volunteer system specifically for service in Germany. Is that correct? Yes. Um, you can see, you can see uh, posters today that say volunteer for duty in Germany. And uh, it was the ability of soldiers to be created from draft, you know, from volunteers on the streets of America and, and to volunteer to go serve in the Rhineland, in the occupation army. And one of the successes of General Allen was to take that force of recruits and form them into a, a well-trained and cohesive unit. And he did it with a selected group of officers that remained in Germany who volunteered. And he did it with non-commissioned officers who sunk you know, most of them had experience in World War One, and they elected to re remain behind in the Rhineland. But the troops were all recruits. Okay, um, just taking a deviation quick from the from the actual storyline. Can you tell listeners a little bit about where you did uh, some of your research and some of the key sources that were used? Sure. So, a. Uh, uh, Substantial part of the archival record was left behind by General Allen himself in that three formal reports that they the, the force created. The first one is known to a lot of people. It was published in World War II, the first part of it. It's known as the Hunt Report. Uh, Colonel Hunt was the uh, civil affairs officer for the Third Army, and uh, he published a formal report that covered the period of occupation from 1918 through 1920. 
which is mainly the Third Army period of time. General Allen continued that system of reporting uh, with two further, further reports. One was uh, covered the period 1920 and 21, and the, and the third one covered the period 1922 and 23. And these are typescripts of basically a thousand pages a piece with many annexes that form an archival record of the what was what happened during the occupation. Uh, the American forces in Germany published a newspaper called the Amarok News from 1920 all the way to the end. Uh, I reviewed that. I reviewed these formal reports. I reviewed the uh, Allen papers in the Library of Congress, Pershing Papers, Library of Congress, etc. Also conducted research in the National Archives, where there's a substantial record left behind. And, you know, what it shows is that uh, General Allen's staff was very accomplished in its ability to report both on the developments in Europe and the developments in the Army. And all that forms the basis that I used to write the book. You alluded to a little earlier, sir, about the, uh, the the separate peace treaty that the United States ultimately signed with Germany. Um, can you talk about that and the effect that that treaty had on General Allen's leadership of the American forces in Germany? So the main thing to know about the uh, separate peace with Germany was that it adopted the elements for the occupying powers that had been in the Treaty of Versailles for the United States. It, it empowered the same authorities and continued the Rhineland occupation. It didn't cut it off. So the armistice authorities that he had as a military governor, even though the Treaty of Peace went into effect with Germany, continued after the Treaty of Peace because they were written into the agreement. And that's why the occupation continued on because it was it was written right into the, the Treaty of Peace with Germany, the separate Treaty of Peace. It really didn't, uh, it didn't cut off his authority. He continued and it adopted what the other allies had already been doing under the Versailles Treaty. Okay. Uh, I got the sensing um, from your book that life for the average soldier uh, wasn't too bad uh, occupying in Germany, considering uh, the location, the uh, liberty and, and leave policies that, that were in place, um, even some of the training. Uh, so could you talk about life for the average soldier? Sure. So it, life was good for the soldier on the Rhine, uh, but it was principally good not only because he was part of a, a unit with a, a mission with a great commander who trained actively, uh, but he had a schedule that you know enabled recreational activities in the evening, uh, and his money, his pay went, went a great deal because at the time that the American soldiers were present in the Rhineland, the uh, dollar to the Deutschmark was, you know, constantly, this, this was when inflation was taking hold in Germany. So the soldier pay in dollars was worth more and more as time went on. And in the book, I say that, you know, a, a private had as much disposable income as a German merchant. And so, you know, what they could do with that. Um, you also have to remember that 
prohibition had gone into effect in the United States. Prohibition was not in effect in Germany. So, you know, the wine and beer that uh, Soldier Bay could produce, could purchase, um, made for a comfortable life. Did, did the soldiers continue to bill it uh, with uh, the local population? Great question. So uh, when General Allen took command, he moved these the American soldiers into barracks, and so they were billeted by themselves. Uh, some of the officers still lived with Germans, but in the main, the soldiers went into what what anybody who'd served into in West Germany during the Cold War would recognize as an American concern. And what about uh, you know the travel for the soldiers? Were they able to experience other parts of Europe? Yes, they were. You know, when you look in the uh, archival record, uh, even today you can purchase uh, postcards from soldiers in the Third Army during the occupation period from uh, late 1918 into 1919. Those, those are fairly common. And soldiers in the Third Army traveled all over Europe. That process continued during the American forces in Germany. Although I get the, uh, the feeling that the soldiers in the American forces in Germany under General Allen's leadership had quite a lot to do and may not have been off on leave as often as people in the Third Army were. Mm-hmm. It was it was that uh, presumably was due to the the training regimen that was set up um, by General Allen. Exactly, and it was a year round training regimen. Uh, you know, even in the winter months, General Allen was conducting inspections and individual soldier training and classroom instruction, so that you know year round the soldiers had had a training uh, objective. It stretched from individual training in the spring to unit training uh, early summer to large unit maneuvers in the fall. And they were always engaged uh, training in the morning. Sometimes they would have classes in the afternoon before the recreational activities in the evening. So, yes, they were gainfully employed. That was part of his his effort that uh, this occupation should be uh, an example according to international standards. And part of that was keeping the soldiers occupied with gainful employment. How was the, uh, the AFG viewed by uh, General March and General Pershing, both as, as chiefs of staff um, during their tenure? So again, to me, an interesting question. Uh, the readers need to understand, the listeners need to understand that uh, the two chiefs of staff spent time with the American forces in Germany. General March went in June of 1920, and he stayed for basically two weeks and looked at every activity, every location, every barrack, uh, kind of a thorough check by the chief of staff of the Army. And I, I think he was, you know, testing to see, was this, was this a good force? Was it sound? Did it have a valid mission? How was it doing? Uh, the result was he, he gave the uh, American forces Germany high marks, uh, a thorough check. And then he followed it a couple weeks later with his army inspector general doing the same thing. And out of all that, uh, the American forces in Germany passed with flying colors. General Pershing came a, a year later. He was the new chief of staff of the army. 
Um, to me, the intense interest and intense scrutiny that General March put the American forces in Germany under uh, compares with kind of a benign neglect by General Pershing. He'd seen he'd seen the the occupation force uh, in the spring of 1919 in detail. He'd conducted visits with all the divisions that were part of the Third Army, uh, division level reviews and in meetings, and spoke to them all. And so. Uh, I don't think he took as much interest in the American forces in Germany as General March did. He came back in September 1920, paid a visit to the division maneuver, conducted a, a, an AFG-level review, and he was happy with what he saw, but he didn't turn over every rock like General March did. Okay. Uh, can you talk about the change in presidential administrations following the 1920 uh, election in the United States and how that affected the future of the occupation? So the central issue uh, to uh, the continuing occupation was the stance of the United States Senate. First with the Treaty of Peace, the Treaty of Versailles, which they never ratified. And then with the cost of the occupation. And the proximate cause of the uh, withdrawal of the American forces in Germany in early 1923, the, the real underlying reason was that by the agreement, the occupation costs were supposed to be paid by the Germans, but the money, because of reparations issues, never flowed uh, into the Treasury of the United States. And this became an issue with the Senate. The Senate was not willing to foot the bill for the occupation. Um, the, the president, Warren Harding, who was elected in 1920, ran on a platform of withdrawing the force. Uh, when he came into office, there were reasons why it was uh, to the United States' interest to leave the force in place. Having an occupation force in Germany enabled the negotiations for the um, the reduction of arms, the arms limitation treaties, the Washington treaties, uh, the Secretary of State used that as part of the leverage to get those enacted. Uh, so they didn't withdraw the force immediately, but when the occupation uh, costs were not paid, that became an issue that the president couldn't overcome. And even though he had deep respect for General Allen and he recognized the accomplishments, uh, they withdrew the force in 1923. And can you talk about with that withdrawal, sort of the lead up to it and, and both the international uh, context revolving around that uh, ultimate decision to withdraw the force, as well as how it was ultimately carried out? Sure. It's a pretty complicated story. So as I already alluded to, uh, in 1922, uh, it became an increasing issue with the, the French, the British, and the Belgians about the Germans' ability to pay reparations under the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, because the Germans had trouble making their reparations payments at various points, uh, they were declared in arrears or declared in default. And, you know, various international meetings were held to try to get them to pay. But because they weren't paying, uh, they never caught up to paying the occupation costs to the United States. Uh, and in the summer of 1922, 
the president said he was going to take the American forces in Germany out. And uh, from about March 1922 to the 1st of July, there was a big debate about whether the, any forces would remain, would General Allen remain on the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission. In the end, that was settled by leaving a token force of a 1,000 uh, troops and General Allen and his presence in the Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission. That lasted through 1922, but that whole year was one of, will they stay? Will they go? Will we get our occupation cost? Will the Germans pay reparations? And so over the issue of uh, reparations, the French decided that they were going to occupy the Ruhr Industrial Complex, and they did so in January 1923. And that was used as a, as a proximate cause to remove the American force. But the real underlying reason was the Germans had not been paying our occupation costs. The Senate wasn't happy with it. The president had never been a big fan of uh, keeping an American force in, in Germany, and so the, it came to an end. And General Allen, he stayed uh, as commander of the American forces in Germany throughout the entire duration of, of the occupation. Was there any ever any discussion of of a replacement or uh, a, you know, mo- a moving on from that position? There was not because uh, he, he did a, he was doing a successful job. He had the support of both the secretary of state and the secretary of war. Again, it had been handpicked by general Pershing. So, you know, his performance was satisfactory and there was never any reason to try to replace him. It was just a question about, whether the United States it's, itself would continue to occupy and be a participant in the Rhineland occupation. Can you talk about, sir, the, the legacy then uh, as withdrawal takes place uh, of the American occupation of Germany? So I, I labeled this occupation in the end of my book, I labeled it as a missed opportunity because uh, General Allen and the American forces in Germany were, were successfully occupying the American zone around Koblenz. Uh, he was a balancing force in the debates and disputes of the Inter-Allied and Rhineland Head Commission. He uh, prevented punitive steps on the part of the French to uh, punish the Germans with provisions inside the commission. He he protected international law and the Rhineland Agreement. Uh, he was successful in all these respects. So when we prematurely withdrew, we were supposed to be there uh, for many more years. When we prematurely withdrew from the participation in the Rhineland uh, occupation, uh, things went from bad to worse. So there wasn't any balancing force. Uh, the French were increasingly punitive. The Inter-Allied Rhineland High Commission was not a balanced force anymore. It was a two-to-one vote uh, in favor of French views. And so it was a missed opportunity. I think that if we'd continued, um, the cost would have been eventually paid. They were. Uh, we would have continue to exert a balancing force and some of the 
unbalanced things that led to 1933 and the rise of Adolf Hitler, I think, would have been at least forestalled, if not prevented. And this this wasn't specifically within the scope of your research for the book, but do you know, just by way of association, if there was, um, you know, by, by planners at, at the end of World War II, if there was any uh, use of the experience of the American forces in Germany after World War One for planning uh, occupations after World War II? So the uh, School of Military Government that was created as we prepared to occupy around the world uh, in World War II, reprinted the first one of those three formal reports that I mentioned as the Hunt Report in, in 1943. But it was only the first part of the first report. It covered the period 1918 to 1920, the Third Army period. And nobody made any use at all of the second and third formal reports that General Allen completed, uh, which were part of the continuing success story. So they used uh, the, the Rhineland occupation, but just the first part of it as they formed their policies and as they trained officers to be uh, military government officials. Uh, so they used it, but just a part. It's an incomplete mm-hmm. story. Yes, Interesting. Uh, well, we are starting to wrap up the the discussion here, but can you uh, just tell listeners what future projects you might be working on uh, and any other comments you'd like to mention? So what I'm interested in now is what lessons did the um, United States Army learn from its experience in World War One? Uh, in parallel, if you look at our doctrinal lessons and our our experience, uh, the American Expeditionary Forces, what do we learn about the employment of artillery, the use of, of tanks? Uh, what was the proper use of infantry and those type of lessons? And that's what I'm try- starting to, uh, to research. And that kind of g- goes out of my research into the training that the American forces in Germany did and what impact it had on the army. So now I'm looking at the army as a whole. Okay, great. Well, look forward to seeing that product when it, uh, when it comes to completion eventually. Um, well, this has been an episode of new books in military history. Uh, my name is Alex Beckstrand. And today we were joined by Colonel Dean, the whiskey um, talking about his book, the American Army in Germany, 1918 to 1923, Success Against the Odds. Sir, uh, we appreciate you being on, and it's been uh, great talking to you about the book. Thanks for the opportunity again.